couldn't finish that whoop there. I lost my whoop juice for a second. No, you just zapped out. I, I lost my whoop juice. Uh, <laughs> welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be taking you through our delightful journey into neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah uh, soon. We are doing yes. it again. Oh, I forgot that we're doing it again. I didn't even do that we're doing it again. I'm yeah. I'm so bad. I felt um, I was like did- half singing. <laughs> we had a broken whoop. I was I was unsung. It was very weird. We're doing this on a different day than we normally do during the week. It's throwing the whole vibe off. Uh, we'll we'll get it figured out. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll that being that being said, as we always will start, uh, or most of the time at least, we'll start the episodes when we start these off. There are current events going on, and we mm. need to hit on them because there are some. There's at least one doozy that I know of going on that we need to talk about. Uh, and that would be, David, what the fuck's going on in Nicaragua and why are we doing Bolivia 2.0? Yeah, so um, Nicaragua had elections and Ortega was widely reelected for the fourth term, 74% uh, of the popular vote. Daniel Ortega is incredibly popular. The Sandinistas are incredibly popular. Mind you, these are people that came into power. Um, and had to fight off like the genocidal Central American Contra wars, uh, the, you know, H.W. Bush and, and Reagan. Um, and then mind you that these are people that when they came into power, literacy shut up. The last time they, they lost an election for a couple years, which what was that 89, um, literacy immediately collapsed. And then they won the next election, came back into power and, and literacy shot right back up. I mean, this is definitely a for the people, um, party and this is also one of those things where all those people that are like our fake election results like this wasn't 50 0.1 percent and they fudged votes or whatever accused crap this wasn't 99 percent of the vote and i mean those things are seem unlikely but could happen this was 75 percent of the vote this is what you expect from like a widely incredibly popular party to get you know 55 to 80 percent of the vote 75 is is in that reasonable range when you actually serve the people that's the kind of votes you get and the united states doesn't like that the united states is not a fan of the sandinistas and the united states of course is doing the usual oas denounce oh the election is rigged da 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 in spite of all of the observers um from you know everyone right i mean the un um usually i think the carter uh not yeah the yeah, I think, I think it's Jimmy. Yeah, I think, yeah, um, you know, they were there observing and, and said it was good. I mean, all these observers were there, and these real official election observers too are being shut out by. Um, I guess it's not Facebook anymore; it's Meta now. Um, Meta and and other social media are kicking these observers off when these observers are like, "No, I was an election observer. This is good," which they've officially submitted, and these are real election observers. They've been kicked off as quote unquote bots. You know, which is funny because the whole Russiagate thing has been proven a hoax. Not that we should ever trust any of these narratives, and not that that wasn't kind of goofy if it was real. Like, you know, one Trump P tape and a couple Russian hackers making, you know, getting a hundred thousand and making a few memes swinging at four years of America's history. It's like that—that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. But it was also proven a hoax. But there's still disclaimers on like RT on on YouTube, like this is a Russian state media, duh, 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 duh. and there there's all this like bot kickoff, and and I I don't think it's still the Atlantic Council that's working with Facebook slash Meta, but they still have this kicking off, you know, uh, fake news and kicking off bots stuff. Uh, Google still has the new algorithm that seems to even more enforce than the 
algorithm um, standard narratives rather than you know search results and advertisements. The big top secret algorithm, and so all that stuff is still in place. You know, like the, the it can be thoroughly debunked, um, and all that stuff's still in place. And now they're using that to kick off uh, Nicaraguan election observers, so people don't realize this election is very, very valid because the United States needs their little color rev narrative. But except for drumming up sanctions and warmongering, there's really not a whole lot the U.S. can do because Daniel Ortega is incredibly, incredibly popular and this was a sound election win now the unfortunate and slightly confusing turn is you remember a few months ago pedro castillo won i do remember that uh and it was this Peru? yeah yeah uh you know as a party libre is that the represented by a pencil is peru right it's where yeah. the lima group is oh yeah you know we kicked out the lima group with you know with the socialist right this is terrific right this guy has an ml background this is awesome and he came in and all of a sudden it was like well you know you don't know what he is right he he um, has some history with some other political stuff that that could be shady we'll see if he's really what he promised but he seems to be for the people and for the indigenous people and stuff like that well now he's it's either him or it's in his government, and he doesn't really have the power to personally speak up, but the government as a whole of Peru was like, oh, you know, we stand with the OAS that we don't recognize these Nicaraguan election. It's it's kind of like AMLO in Mexico, right, where you have a quote-unquote left-wing president, and he's not nearly what is promised, and he's certainly better than the right-wing candidate, and this is a bigger gulf than, like, Democrats or Republicans in the United yeah. States – but this president is not as left-wing or is expressing as much solidarity with the surrounding countries as you would hope or expect. So, like, AMLO, you know, turned around and renewed uh, NAFTA, right? And he sent cops out after the Haitian refugees on the border, but also sent the needles to Cuba when Cuba was under a blockade and, and suffering and, and the U.S. was trying to drum up a little color rev there a few months ago. You get the kind of the same thing seems to be the case from Pedro Castillo. He's going to nationalize some industries, but not too many to piss the United States off. There's been, uh, from some foreign countries, having some you know mills to, to get minerals and things out of Peru. There's been some uprisings where they've been, the, the indigenous population that doesn't want their land exploited anymore has literally burned down the mills. It's like fantastic revolutionary people's party in Peru. One of the, the promising things, you know, kind of like where I tell people, Bernie Sanders isn't the person that like brought socialism to the forefront in America. That's dumb as hell. And he's been around forever, right? Bernie Sanders became popular in the coattails of the same movement that, that brought us occupy. That was at the world trade organization in 99. That was fighting the Iraq war. He's more of a signal, like a head of the wave, a mainstream head that people see, right? I think Pedro Castillo in the same way, this is indigenous people in Peru and left-wing people and communists grabbing back power. And that's why Pedro Castillo came so out of nowhere. And so he's not going to be the perfect candidate and he's going to have contradictions. And, and like I said, it's going to be like AMLO. It's not even going to be someone that we're as solidly, you know, proud of and behind as like, say, Evo Morales or um, Nicolas Maduro, um, you know, or or obviously in, you know, Cuba um, and, and in Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, you know, any of that, right? But he is someone that, that we moderately support, like AMLO. He's good that he's left-wing, but it's going to be mixed. But if you see him as like the peak of a wave of growing people party, in, uh, growing people power in Peru, that's a good sign, right? 
Um, but unfortunately, public facing that the government officially joined in the anti-Nicaragua narrative, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, so just know those elections are very real and very valid and international observers are totally giving it the thumbs up and the U.S. is just doing its usual, you know, imperialist OAS bullshit and don't believe anything about Nicaragua being some kind of dictatorship or, or whatever the crap. Um, it's not true, you know, and, and some people actually even, and this is the dumbest thing, you know, they'll see someone like, say, Angela Merkel, who served four terms in Germany and be like, oh, she's great, you know, girl boss and stuff, right? And, and we saw this with, with Maduro where it's, oh, he's not constitutionally allowed to have three terms. He's overstaying his power or they try to do that Eva Morales. Like every country needs to universally have some term limit. Unless they're imperialist country, then we can just let it go. And so this is Daniel Ortega's fourth term. That's okay. That's what the people elected. That's what's allowed in Nicaragua's constitution. That doesn't make him a dictator. No. Don't don't fall for that dumb shit. It's so. it's pretty it's pretty clear. And again, it's it's giving this it's it, it it was I, I you know offhandedly said we're doing Bolivia too, but we we saw this exact same script in Bolivia. Like this is not yeah, we, we've seen this, this should, in Bolivia. And honestly, honestly, this is not like quite like Bolivia where they terrifyingly sent Evan Morales and, and Moss running by burning down people's houses. I certainly hope they don't resort to that again. Um, I think this feels a little more like Venezuela, um, where nothing is actually happening in the country except the, the, the suffering that U.S. sanctions brings counteracted by by the uh, you know betterment of the people by having this, this government that they select that serves their needs. Um, and that contradiction plays out in ways that uplift some people, that leave some people harmed by the sanctions. But mostly we just see it from the outside and we see a giant, crazy propaganda blitz. I'm sure some Juan Guaido will pop out of nowhere in, you know, the next few months or something. But really in the country, no, nobody's questioning this. Let's know? be real. The Juan Guaido that's going to appear out of nowhere is just Juan Guaido. <laughs> Juan Guaido is just going to show Guido. up and declare that the he has rifle, won this election. The rightful president of Nicaragua. <laughs> I mean, that's right. that's what's going to happen. That's that's you know we sit there and we call Venezuela the Bolivarian Revolution, and, and Juan Guaido leads the opposition. But the whole time, Juan Guaido's been Bolivar, and he's just the president of Gran Colombia. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> oh my God! Oh, I feel dirty now. Oh, I feel I feel dirty putting Juan Guaido and the Liberator in the same same sentence. No, thank you. Um, never again. Liar to ask Juan Guaido. Oh God. Um, anything else percolating? Oh yes, lately? yes. So that yes. is not the only current event. So last time I mentioned um, that in Ethiopia, specifically, you know, in the the capital uh, Addis Ababa, it looked like the TPLF was closing in. Thankfully, that that has been pushed back on very well. And people, specifically two days ago, were out in the streets, um, and they specifically had a no more protest, like no more U.S. involvement, no more backing of the TPLF. They know, they know this is foreign-backed. And so, I mean, I we could post the pictures on our, our Twitter if people want, but you can see just the seas of green, yellow, and red flags of people just across Addis Ababa in this protest two days ago in full-throated support of the Ethiopian government and wanting imperialists to get their hand, keep their hands off. And so, you know, it's kind of held 
held off, which is good. And it was a little unusual to see the weird U.S. you know token denouncement of the TPLF when their material backing of the TPLF has not changed one bit, right? Um, but like I said, thankfully, it seems like the pace of the TPLF has slowed. The people are are standing in their capital and standing up for themselves. And the new propaganda has been, oh, there's these detained U.S. officials or U.N. officials. And the UN won't release, you know, who they are or their ethnicity because they don't want to stir some ethnic narrative bullshit. But the, the Western speculation is that they're Tigrayan and this is totally a racist thing because, you know, they're genociding Tigrayans and they're, they're kidnapping Tigrayan UN officials. And there's no evidence of any of that, right? We don't even know the names of these detained UN officials or why they're detained. We just know that there's international meddling and that the, that, you know, the people are out in the streets defending Ethiopia and that all of these Tigrayan and TPLF-backed narratives about the Ethiopian government withholding aid and all of that is a crock of shit. And that's that's what we know, right? Um, so that was great to see that demonstration and see the people, you know, stand up for their country and, and, and hold on to their power uh, against, you know, the TPLF and against um, Western, you know, backed interference. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean the Western backed interference has just gone away. So that's a constantly evolving, like a civil war at this point. Um, but Addis Ababa did not suddenly fall, right? Uh, Ethiopia is still holding strong. The Ethiopian government is still holding strong. On the Eritrean front, on the other side of the TPLF, Eritrea is still holding strong. And so things are going well there after some strong TPLF advances. Unfortunately, that still means that they're suffering from Tigrayan people because the TPLF doesn't give a flying fuck about them. They're just asking for aid, creating a humanitarian situation, exaggerating the humanitarian situation. It thankfully doesn't seem like it's famine or genocide level, but People are definitely suffering without enough food and medical care and, and, and things like that within this situation. And the TPLF is taking away those supplies and making it a situation where the Ethiopian government also can't take care of those people. Um, and so there are Tigrayans suffering, ironically, because of the TPLF. Uh, and that's that's very sad. But otherwise, things have kind of, it seems like, turned a little bit for the better in the less than a week it's been since we recorded last. Um also in Africa, uh, one last thing, something that was pointed out uh, by Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly of uh, the Black Alliance for Peace. Uh, there was an article, right? And let me tell you about this article. This is way better than the Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week. Okay. Uh, there's a think tank that was founded in India in the 90s. Oh, good. Called the Observer Research Foundation. Let nope. me tell you about the Observer Research Foundation. I really wish you wouldn't. It's 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 a good one. Uh, let's let's just talk a little bit about its partners. Its partners include Apple, mm-hmm. uh, the Gates Foundation. Was going to be my next guess. Yeah, uh, Facebook, mm. Google. Oh, goody! Mastercard. Seems strange. Lockheed Martin. There you go. Where's Northrop Gunman? <laughs> uh, Uber. Oh, oh just, good. Just wait for this next one. The World Bank. Mm. IMF getting in there? IMF getting in there? Uh, no, no, but uh, in, in lieu of it, uh, you've got the Council of Europe and the Council of Foreign Relations. That sounds like some 19th century imperialist shit right there. That That's that's some fun stuff. So we've got this nice India-based um, <coughs> think tank. Now, I'm sure 
not much U.S. news is going to pay too much attention to this, but this is how the coups in Africa will be covered if it's spilled over. This is nice, formal, you know, objective think tank. Remember, this is the stuff that you don't see that finds its way to the people that, like, read the Atlantic seriously and shit. They also see stuff like this. So this this matters to, like, the high-class liberals. This is how you get the people that, that run the news, even when they're not directed to have certain stories by the CAA or just have a bullshit source that's that's just a fucking general that still lobbies for a weapons uh, manufacturer and they're like, oh yeah, that's an unbiased war expert. Like, even when they're not, they're just kind of soaking in this ideology from from publications that republish shit like this. Now, this is written uh, by Abhisek Mishra, and it's titled, Coups are making a comeback in Africa, but what's driving them? Now, we're not going to read this word for word, like, like we sometimes no. do with the Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week. Uh, but I will mention that, uh, while it does mention the 2017 coup in Zimbabwe of Robert Mugabe as a big swing of coups, and included in that with a bunch of coups, it does mention there's no good coup or coup that represents the people. But throughout this, it's kind of a scrawl where the 90s and 2000s brought about all these democratic reforms in, in Africa, and all these coups threatened to lose those democratic gains, because things have been so much better in Africa since the 90s. I mean, that's... I don't know. That's what I see. We haven't specifically cited the real history that goes in the opposite direction of how things have gone in Africa since the collapse of Soviet Union. Nope. Democracy is prevailing. Except yeah. for these coups. These poor coups that are ruining everything. And, and to... Uh, you know, Mr. Mishra's credit, there is a little chart he put in here himself where he has the coups listed since 2010, right? And he has, you know, coups like Guinea-Bissau in April 2012, Burkina Faso in 2015, Zimbabwe in 2017, Mali in, uh, it was 2020 last year? I can't even keep track of what year. Yes, 2020 was yes. last year. Okay, to Mali last year, Guinea this year, Sudan uh, this year. I mentioned recently, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is, I think, probably what sparked this this report, considering the timing. And in there, there's actually a column that says Colonial Master. And I'm sure that's supposed to be Historic Colonial Master, but let's be real. Mm. Also, weirdly enough... Weirdly enough, none of them are the United States. So this is colonial master, like, below the hegemon. Yeah. Um, but the problem with this article is not that it's just going, oh, coups, what, you know, this is taking away from the people and all these democratic reforms are there. The problem with this article is not just the think tank that puts it out and who's it sponsored by. The real crazy problem with this article, you notice I mentioned the United States is not there under colonial master, is something that was summed up in a tweet citing this article uh, by Dr. Sharice Burton-Stelly, and it's summed up in four words. No mention of AFRICOM. This whole fucking scrawl of coups are making a comeback in Africa. I wonder why. And then it's just this crazy, like, troubling thing without much explanation. It's just a curious trend. And there's not a damn word about AFRICOM. So let's let's be very, very, very clear here, okay? Cited even by Western think tanks, there's been 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 coups in Africa in the last 12 years. That's a coup a year, okay? And those that's, are just the ones cited in this little grid. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fairly, fairly heavy. 
Yeah, that's the undeniable ones. That's not this this civil war um, in Ethiopia. That's that's just the cited undeniable coups. Yeah, and the driver of those coups, do not mistake it, is Africom. Now, to be clear, just in case any of the listeners don't know, and to make sure that I am understanding it correctly, what is Africom? Africom is African Command. So, um, you know, there's I think it's Americom or. Amercom, I, I don't remember how they, they, but there's the American Command of the United States, which is is kind of their military branch of commanding, you know, all of the South American and Central American countries. There's Asiacom, Asian Command, um, <coughs> and then Africom, which is something that was started in the 90s. It was really poured money into it under Bush and had its first big expansion under Bush, and it just exploded under Obama and is continuing to unfold. Uh, but AFRICOM, the African Command, is something that has really, really, really shot up, like I said, since the 90s. It's <laughs> these quote-unquote democratic movements compared with these coups, right? And again, that's just the, the military factor. It's not like the CIA is not doing its meddling. It's not like we don't have all kinds of you know corporate and financial interests and the World Bank, the IMF, working their neocolonialism throughout Africa, something we will get right back to on the subject of the book, but something that is a little more modern that jumps off this book and something when we tie this back to today, and that's the whole reason I brought up this, this article, when we tie this back to today, everything about this book is shockingly current and is spot on. And today, these days, you need to add one other thing to all of your analysis when you look at Africa. The most undeniable thing out there, and that is Africa. And we must combat the U.S. military, U.S. imperialism, and that means combating Africa, where most of the focus seems to be. I, I'm starting to think a lot of the, the pulling out of Afghanistan, quote-unquote, has been not to surround China and ramp up this Cold War. That was just happening separately anyway. It seems to be that they're putting more resources and time into AFRICOM and really trying to control the Horn of Africa. Again, I mean, tied to China. I mean, they're just pushing back on one belt, one road, um, and also the growth of Africa in general. But that's why so much, the all, all that, you know, scaremongering about Chinese loans in Africa and, and Chinese imperialism in Africa wasn't just Sinophobic lies and fear-mongering. It's also about protecting interests in Africa, and the U.S. is not just doing that with public narratives in the United States. The U.S. is doing that on the ground, and we cannot forget that. Absolutely. That being said, it is about time for us to launch into the work this week, so without further ado, let us go back to Neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, we are starting with the more efficient management of primary production and improvement on a marketing level is imperialism's gain and our loss. The point has been made quite clearly by no less a person than the chairman of Bolsa, the Bank of London in South America, Sir George Bolton. I'm going to imagine that he is related to the other Bolton that that does the bad things with the mustache and the Yosemite Sam look. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John Bolton. I'm going to imagine that that's just like his great-great-granddaddy or something. Um, the latter was reported in the Financial Times of the 6th of March, 1964, as being confident of a rise in commodity prices, which would have considerable effect on the foreign exchanges. For whose benefit? Sir George provides the answer. It would help the reserve currencies sterling and the dollar, he said. Why? Because being tied to these currencies 
the primary he primary producer the primary producers will be accumulating their surplus in sterling and dollar balances. This appears to be nothing short of a direct confession of the major interest of the banking and financial world in the exploitation of the developing countries. It is interesting, therefore, to note that Bolsa's transfer agents in London and Patino Mines are and enterprises consolidated the American-controlled combine operating mines in Latin America and Canada and intimately associated with the groups engaged in exploiting Africa's natural resources. We are currently not against marketing and trading. On the contrary, we are for a widening of our potentialities in these spheres, and we are convinced that we shall be able to adjust the balance in our favor only by developing an agriculture attuned to our needs and supporting it with a rapidly increasing industrialization that will break the neocolonialist pattern which at present operates. A continent like Africa, however, much it increases its agricultural output will not benefit unless it is sufficiently politically and economically united to force the developed world to pay it a fair price for its cash crops. To give one illustration, both Ghana and Nigeria have, in the post-war independence period, enormously developed their production of cocoa, as the table on page 10 shows. We'll get there in a minute. This result has not been obtained by chance. It is the consequence of heavy internal expenditures on control of disease and pests, the subsidizing of insecticides and the spraying machines provided to farmers, and the importing of new varieties of coca seedlings, which are resident in the endemic ills which previous coca trees had developed. By means such as these, Africa as a whole greatly increased her coca production, while that of Latin America remained stationary. Now, one one thing to note, too, um, we talked about swollen shoot syndrome um, in the introduction, so obviously that's being alluded to here. Right. So just remember, this was a major point of contention for people in Ghana. Uh, also, that uh, Patino Mines and Enterprises, it seems defunct now. I'm sure it's been gobbled up by God knows what bank. But that was a major, major mining company uh, of the United States in the 50s and 60s in Bolivia specifically. So, again, you know, anytime we're talking about this, whether we're talking about South America uh, or Africa, these are fights for indigenous rights against their lands being extracted by imperialist companies. And yep. it's the same conglomerate imperialist companies. And it always is. And we, this goes back to imperial, that goes back to imperialism. We learned that, that it, it always is these, these same multinational conglomerates have done this forever and they don't leave. They don't go away. New ones are added, but they're usually, they subsume the other ones. They become parent companies of the other ones and they all kind of grow and intertwine into this nice little multinational group of, of, you know, finance monopoly and all of that kind of thing. Yes. What advantage has Nigeria or Ghana gained through the stupendous increase in its agricultural productivity? In 1954 to 5, when Ghana's production was 210,000 tons, her 1954 earnings from the coca crop were 85.5 million. This year, 1964 and 5, with an estimated crop of 590,000 tons, her, the estimated inter- external earnings will be around 77 million. Nigeria has suffered a similar experience. And then there's a chart that goes over coca bean production, but we are a yeah. podcast that doesn't read charts. No, um, we're, we're not going to read charts, especially when they're cut off the page. But that's, that's pretty damning, right? The production more than doubled, almost tripled. <coughs> and the profit not only stayed the same... In spite of inflation, and let's face it, inflation was happening at this time, it went down. Yeah, it went down. It's 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 wild. In 1954-5, she produced 89,000 tons of beans and received for her crop 39.25 million. 
1965, it is estimated Nigeria will produce 310,000 tons and is likely to receive for it around 40 million. In other words, Ghana and Nigeria have trebled their production of this particular agricultural product, but their gross earnings from it have fallen from 125 million to 117 million. A detailed study of production and price shows that it is the developed consuming country which obtains the advantage of the increased production in the less developed one. So as long as African agricultural producers are disunited, they will be unable to control the market price of their primary products. As experience with the Coca Producers Alliance has shown, any organization which is based on a mere commercial agreement between primary producers is insufficient to secure a fair world price. This can only be obtained when the united power of the producer countries is harnessed by common political and economic policies and has behind it the united financial resources of the states concerned. So long as Africa remains divided, it will therefore be the wealthy consumer countries who will dictate the price of African cash crops. Nevertheless, even if Africa could dictate the price of its cash crops, this would not by itself provide the balanced economy which is necessary for development. The answer must be industrialization. The African continent, however, cannot hope to industrialize effectively in the haphazard, laissez-faire manner of Europe. In the first place, there is the time factor. In the second, the socialized modes of production and tremendous human and capital investments involved call for cohesive and integrated planning. Africa will need to bring to its aid all of its latent ingenuity and talent in order to meet the challenge that independence and the demands of its peoples for better living have raised. The challenge cannot be met on any piecemeal scale but only by the total mobilization of the continent's resources within the framework of comprehensive socialist planning and development or deployment. I apologize. David, do you want to go? Sure. Uh, We have noted that in the countries of the highest settler populations and therefore the most exploited so far in Africa, Algeria, Congo, Kenya, Morocco, Rhodesia, Malawi, South Africa, and Tanganyika, agriculture is predominant. In the case of South Africa, the most highly developed area in the African continent, the contribution of agriculture and mining is together equal to that of industry, manufacture, and construction. South Africa's economy is heavily bolstered by the export of its mining output. Gold contributes up to 70% of the total exports, which makes the economy for all its apparent boom and the heavily increasing foreign investment basically almost as insecure as that of the less developed countries of the continent. For all its pushing secondary industries, its chemical manufacture, military production, steel processing, and the rest, South Africa has so far failed to lay down the basis of solid industrialization. G.E. Metal, chairman of the Anglo Transvaal Consolidated Investment Company. I oh, no. That name again. Oh, no. That just, no. No, no, no. Just, I don't know what this is, but it sounds bad. Yeah, uh, which controls gold, diamonds, and uranium in yep, all right, it's bad. South it's Africa. Bad. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. bad. This is Elon Musk's papa, I guess. This so, is... Yeah. <laughs> uh, made a most telling statement in his annual address on 6 December 1963 to the Johannesburg shareholders meeting. The nation's economy is based to a significant degree on wasting assets. The gold mines of the Transvaal and Orange Free State... What the fuck is the trans? God damn! I need what? to brush damn it. South African history. Yeah, well, hold on. But up, up, but up. People, da. right? If it's not talking about like Steve Biko and Winnie Mandela. I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> uh, okay. 
the Transvaal, pro- the province of Transvaal, commonly referred to as the Transvaal, was a province of South Africa from 1910 to 1944 when a new constitution subdivided it following the end of apartheid. The name Transvaal refers to the province's geographic location to the north of the Vaal River. Its capital was Pretoria, which was also the country's executive capital. Hmm. Okay. There we go. The more you know. Um, we have become more and more aware of this in recent years as more mines near the end of their lives without any sign of new large gold fields, in spite of the many millions being spent on exploration. Investment in South Africa's economy comes mainly from Western capital, which with local finance, not hardly enough to stand on its own feet, is strongly bound. Quick profits are the incentive, so that while Anglo-Transvaal's chairman sees the dangers to the economy, he was nonetheless happy to be able to announce that record profits were again achieved in 1963. Oh, how often do we hear that? Guys, everything's falling. The things are going to explode. Record profits! The the world is barreling into heat death, but record profits for Exxon. Record profits! Yes. Uh, the world of the economy is geared to the interests of the foreign capital that dominates it. South Africa's banking institutions, like those of most other African states, are offshoots of the Western banking and financial houses. South Africa is dominated by Western monopoly even more than by any other sector of the continent. Because the investments are many times greater and the dependence upon gold and other mining as the center of our economy gears it inextricably to the, that monopoly. Its vulnerability is intensified by the fact that it is a supplier of crude and semi-finished products to the factories of the West on a larger scale than the rest of Africa, and an earner of greater profits than their financial backers. Basically, being a banana republic, even for raw materials, is really, really bad. Yeah. Nigeria tells you in a few basic figures a tale of a different kind of economic maladjustment. In 1960, agriculture, forestry, and fishing accounted for 63% of economic activity, mining 1%. The imbalance is emphasized by the extremely low ratio of 2% for industry and manufacture, eliminating at once any comparison with the 1% contribution of mining and 4% of agriculture to America's total economic product. In the case of the United States, this low proportion supports a vast superstructure of industry and manufacture. In Nigeria, it connotes simply a total disregard under colonialism of Nigeria's potentialities. The reason for this lies not in the fact that Nigeria is devoid of natural industrial resources, as the recent findings of oil and iron confirm. It was that Nigeria's agriculture provided greater profitability for European investment than the risks that were involved in the larger capital provisions called for by mining exploration and exploitation. Once again, you have an entire country's economy set up for what is a quick profit for foreign investors. (coughs) And this is not good for the people. No. In 1962, petroleum and petroleum products contributed 9%. Is it supposed to be 0.9? It's like a colon. 9 to 9%? 9% yeah. Yeah, 9 to 9% to Nigeria's exports. But it is Shell BP that hopes to reap most of the benefits. Oh, we got the wrong, we got the wrong one. We called it X, we we called out Exxon earlier. It should have been, I forgot about Shell BP. It was, it was Shell BP, which is now Amoco BP and then Shell. They've kind of split and remerged. But same, same fucking people. Um, 
The bulk of these exports was in crude oil, exceeding 3 million tons. The oil company is aiming at an export target of 5 million tons of crude oil by 1965. The processing plants are in Europe, not in Nigeria. The The oil oil refinery going up in Port Harcourt is owned by Shell BP. The natural gas piping is owned by Shell Barclays, DC and O. The oil refinery is meant to handle only 10% of Nigeria's crude oil output, and its products will will serve only Nigeria's domestic market. Such an arrangement makes it possible not to disturb operations outside Nigeria while making super profits on Nigerian operations. Generally speaking, in spite of the exploration costs, which are often written off for tax purposes anyway, and many times covered by eventual profits, mining has proved a very profitable venture for foreign capital investment in Africa. Its benefits for the Africans, on the other hand, despite all the frothy talk to the contrary, have been negligible. This is explained by the absence of industry and manufacture based upon the domestic natural resources, the use of domestic natural resources, and of the trade that is their con- concomitant? Concomitants. For mining sure. production is des- destined principally for ex- exportation in its primary form. Uh, Concomitant, naturally occurring or associated. Naturally occurring or associated. Uh, Certain exceptions to this generalization are to be found in South Africa, Zambia, and the Congo. Some small conversion has been taking place also in countries like Morocco, Algeria, Mozambique. South Africa's copper is exported in the form of metal, and a small part of its iron is sent overseas as ingots. Its gold is refined, but for these exceptions, most exported minerals are shipped from Africa in their primary state. They go to feed the industries and plants of Europe, America, and Japan. The ore that is to be produced in Swaziland by the Swaziland Iron Ore Development Company, owned jointly by Anglo-American Corporation and powerful British steel group Gust Keen and Metalfolds, will go at the rate of 1,200,000 tons annually for 10 years from 1964 to a Japanese steel combine. When the countries of their origin are obliged to buy back their minerals and other raw products in the form of finished goods, they do so at grossly inflated prices. A General Electric, hey, there's another banger from back in imperialism, advertisement carried in March, April 1962 issue of Modern Government, informs us that from the heart of Africa to the hearths of the world's steel mills comes ore for stronger steel, better steel, steel for buildings, machinery, and more steel rails. I'm just going to stop right there and say it is kind of grotesque when they're, like, advertising the imperialism, right? Mm -hmm. But But they're advertising it in modern government, which might as well be, like, guns and ammo, but for imperialists. That's true. That's true. But it kind of makes you think about how, like, Nestle does that shit with, like, fucking coffee and chocolate and and everything. It's Mm -hmm. gross. And water. Don't forget water. Like the wonderful company just advertises. It just calls it Fiji water. It's from Fiji. You know. Yeah. Africa. Uh, blah, 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 blah. With steel, with the steel from Africa, General Electric supplies transportation for bringing out another valuable mineral for its own use and that of other great imperialist exploiters. In lush verbiage, the same advertisement describes how deep in the tropical jungle of Central Africa lies one of the richest deposits of manganese ore. But is it for Africa's needs? Not at all. The site, which is being developed by the French concern Compagne Minerai de Laon, is located on the upper reach of the Ogua River in the Gabon Republic. After the ore is mined, it will be first carried 50 miles by cableway, 
Then it will be transferred to ore cars and hauled 300 miles by diesel electric motives to the point, to the port of Point Noir for shipment to the world's large, world steel mills. For the world, read the United States first and France second. That exploitation of this nature can take place is due to the balkanization of the African continent. Balkanization is the major instrument of neocolonialism and will be found wherever neocolonialism is practiced. And that is the end of a banging chapter one, ladies and gentlemen. That, that, is that was the a tremendous chapter one, yes. He is Nkrumah is starting hard and not letting off the gas so far. So this is I'm I'm excited to dive into chapter two. David, you want to take us away? Uh, sure. Chapter two, Obstacles to Economic Progress. Speaking, in all caps, speaking of West African in 1962, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa pointed out, few other regions of the world show such a multitude of fairly small states, both as far as production and population go. The only similar region of some importance is Central America. Boy, isn't that convenient for the Americans. <laughs> West Africa is, in fact, divided into 19 separate independent states and includes two colonial enclaves possessed by Spain and Portugal. The population of the area is about a third of the total population of Africa. Yet the average population of the independent countries, if Nigeria is excluded, is about 2 to 3 million. It is, however, illusory to describe to regard even Nigeria as an exception to the balkanization policy practiced by the departing colonial rulers. The constitution imposed on Nigeria at independence divided the country into three regions, which have since grown to four, loosely joined on a federal basis, but with sufficient powers left to the regions to cripple overall economic planning. If the other states of the West are examples of political balkanization, Nigeria is an example of economic balkanization. Ghana, with a population of over 7 million, only escaped a similar fate by the resistance put up by the Convention People's Party government to a British plan which would have created no less than five regions, some with a population less than 1 million, yet each possessing sufficient powers to defeat central planning. Preach your fucking accomplishment there, Nkrumah. Good work. Yeah, that was about to say. Just, just a little bit of, just a little bit of patting ourselves on the back. Well deserved. I, I was going to say, I think he deserves that one. Oh, um, I'm giving it to him. 100% giving it to him. Yes, yes. Uh, Kenya, which is also forced to accept at independence a similar type of constitution, has only recently been able to establish a unified regime. When France was faced with the possibility of being forced to accept some form of independence, or at least self-government, for the territories of the old colonial federations of French West and Equatorial Africa, a series of bal balkanization measures were adopted by the French government. The Law Cater of 1956 established the frontiers of the present French-speaking states. The dismantling process begun by the Law Cater, I, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right, I don't fucking know. I, th I think that's cadre, is it not? Is it cadre? Okay. Loi cadre was completed by a referendum of 1958 on the constitution of the French Fifth Republic. Each of the territories established by the law cadre was called upon to decide separately whether it wished to remain an overseas territory of France, an autonomous republic with a French community, or to be independent. Teresa Hayter, a research assistant for the British Overseas Development Institute in April uh, 1965. Oh, no, I'm just the British Overseas yeah. Development Institute sounds like oh. another one of these fun, uh, fun think tanks that could do nothing but sure. bad things for the world. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, just fucking outstanding stuff. Um, 
In the April 1965 issue of the Journal of the British Royal Institute of International Affairs. This is just yep. better, Nathan. Hold on. Better and better, baby. Uh, has described the process. The territories were to make separate decisions. It was therefore they and not the federations of West and Equatorial Africa, which were legally to inherit France's powers. No provision was made for strengthening the federal institutions, and in fact they were dismantled after the referendum and came formally to an end in April 1959. The original purpose of the federations had been to enable colonies to pay for themselves through a reallocation of their revenues. Sangor, in particular, has bitterly accused France of balkanizing Africa and the Loire cadre. With the choice so loaded, only Guinea voted against constitution. All the others became autonomous republics, members of the Franco-African community. Oh, goody. Fearing that the example of Guinea might be followed by other states which had decided to join the community, the French government removed everything of value from the territory. Oh, good. They just ransacked it. They just looted it on the, they, they looted it on their way out. Administrators and teachers were withdrawn. Documents, even electric light bulbs were removed from government buildings. Financial assistance, trade support, and the payment of pensions to Guinean war veterans were discontinued. Despite the pressure placed on Guinea in this way, the remaining French states were forced by internal pressure to seek political independence. This destroyed the conception usually associated with General de Gaulle, the originator of the French community, of a non-sovereign group of African states, each separately linked to France. One after another, the autonomous republics obtained international sovereignty, but under such adverse conditions that they had, in fact, to maintain all the military, financial, commercial, and economic links of the previous colonial period in order to exist at all as independent states. These former French territories were forced to accept French aid, even to meet their recurrent expenses. French aid to developing countries is in proportion to the French national income, the highest in the world, and in absolute terms, the second highest. Nearly all of this aid is absorbed by commitments in Africa, and nearly half of it goes to the 14 states which were previously autonomous republics and whose combined population is only slightly larger than that of Nigeria. Aid of this type can dictate African relations with the developed world and, as experience has shown, can be extremely dangerous to the recipients. French-African aid originally arose from the advantage which French firms and individuals derive from the African franc zone, and this has been this has determined the framework in which the aid is still provided. So long as the relationship which the aid which the aid provided was profitable to France, it naturally continued. It was in effect a levy on French taxpayers for the benefit of French individuals and firms. The overall value of the policy to France was that in return for guaranteed markets and prices for colonial primary products such as coffee, coca, groundnuts, bananas, and cotton, the African states had to import from France fixed quantities of certain goods such as machinery, textiles, sugar, and flour, which were then uncompetitive in price or surplus in Europe, and in addition, the states were forced to limit their imports from countries outside the franc zone. While this scheme made nonsense of any plan for inter-African trade, it was for a period highly profitable to France. With the fall in the world price of primary commodities, these profits began to diminish, as did enthusiasm for aid in France. At the present moment, the most which can be said in favor of French aid is that it does not now, as it did in the past, make an actual profit for France from the less developed states of its former African empire. Theresa Hayter sums it up. France does not gain in its transactions with the states, nor does it lose. 
aid, private investment, French government expenditures and imports from them are balanced by exports to them. Repatriation of capital and remittance of profits and salaries. It's always good when the best you can say is it doesn't really have any effect. That really makes you feel good about it. Yeah, yeah. You're definitely doing it the right way if that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. This state of affairs is considered to be no longer of value to France. Oh, really? Now that you're not making grotesque profits, it's not valuable to you anymore. Oh, good. Good. Uh, the Giannie report published in 1964 and expressing the official French view pointed out that the protective system of the French zone was no longer in the interest of France. And the report therefore advocated the redeployment of French aid. In any event, France had to comply with her obligations to the European common market. Under the new Convention of Association, which came into force in the summer of 1964, the six members of the European Common Market are to achieve, in stages, a free trade area, and this will no longer make it possible for France to discriminate in favor of the African states, nor for these states to discriminate against France's common market partners. Exports from these states will, by the end of a five-year period, have to be aligned to world prices. In consequence, the primary production which they have built up, the strength of the promise of guaranteed markets, and the prices is likely to fail to be competitive in world conditions. It is difficult to see how Senegal, in particular, can manage without a French subsidy for her ground nuts, and President Senghor has already called attention to the serious economic position into which this places his country. In fact, the limited neocolonialism of the French period is now being merged in the collective neocolonialism of the European common market which enables other states hitherto outside the French preserve to profit by the system. It also rationalizes the division of Africa into economic zones based upon Europe by drawing in four other states, the Congo, Leopoldville. Oh, my God. Did they call it that? I apparently Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, God damn. Burundi and Rwanda are, as previous Belgian colonies, tied to the Belgian economic system, and Somalia, through its previous association with Italy, is also brought in as an associated state of the common market. Uh, we, uh, we won't get into it here, but if any of our listeners actually are unfamiliar with the history of the Congo, it might be the most brutally colonized country in history, and King Leopold, the fact that, that we don't think of him among like the top monsters and, and evil people and greedy, powerful people in the history of the world is almost a crime in and of itself. Yeah, it is. It is. The things he did were atrocious. Yes. Um, it, it was crimes against humanity at the highest degree. Mm-hmm. A grouping such as this raises the wider problems of African neocolonialism and emphasizes its irresponsible nature. Of the states carved out of the former French colonies, one, Guinea, has been able, with great suffering and losses, it is true, to cut free from the type of neocolonialist control imposed on the others. Mali has been forced to accept some of the some Mali has been forced to accept some of the rules and regulations which govern the relations of the former French colonies to France, but at least she has set up her own currency, limits transfers of money abroad, and receives from France only a partial guarantee of the parity of her currency with the French franc. In the case of all other states, their currencies have been stabilized on a fixed parity with the French franc and have a total guarantee from the French treasury. These states pay their receipts of French francs into operation accounts in the French treasury. These accounts can be overdrawn, and the states can draw on them against their own currencies to an unlimited extent. Obviously, however, whatever the theoretical position, the international financial position of these countries is subject to control and that at any time their operation accounts in the French Treasury could be blocked, as was done in the case of Guinea. 
Most, at any rate, of the states concerned lack the strength to stand up against such a pressure as did Guinea. Why, then, it may be asked, are these powers not sufficient to enable France to persuade these states to follow French present, for, present French foreign policy, which is based upon a third force concept? France did not support the United States and Belgium in their humanitarian intervention at Stanleyville in the Congo. Unlike Britain and the other common market countries, France has openly opposed the United States policy in Santo Domingo, has recognized the People's Republic of China, and has recommended the neutralization of Vietnam. Yet only a minority of the African states, which would appear to be under French neocolonial control, have followed the French line. The majority of them refuse to recognize China or in any way criticize United States policy. Indeed, they have behaved in a fashion suggestive of being under United States rather than French influence. The answer to this apparent, apparent paradox will, I believe, be found in the following chapters of this book, in which I attempt to explain the power and ramifications of international financial control. Here, one has a super state, which can at times even override the policy wishes of the nominal neo-colonial master. And that is where we will end for the week. That seems like a fitting uh, end point that for this is, week. Yeah, that is a strong end point and, and really emphasizes the importance of this work. Oh yeah, I mean we're we we haven't even gotten to the meat of it. It just told us what we're about to get into, and um, yeah, it's going to be some important shit. Yeah, I mean it sounds it it sounds very much like we're going to be doing imperialism 2.0 in the modern which again this book is called neo-colonialism the final stage of imperial the last stage of imperialism so it makes sense that it's going to build upon what we did in imperialism but this feels like very much a return to form um and a more modern up uh you know analysis of this neo-colonial relation and and what it can do vis-a-vis international finance capital and what we already have is is international finance capital with doesn't just creating the the market uh, the uh, I'm sorry, the monopolies and and drawing the scramble for Africa and and other colonial territories, uh, but it's how the colonial territories are excised upon. Um, even in more more robust ways, it was described in imperialism. What there were like three forms of of imperialism described in Lenin's imperialism. This uh-huh. seems to be like even more control, right? Exactly. Um, it's more hands on financial control. It's more explicitly done, and we've already been to the point. This again seems like imperialism where we're talking about the specific monopolies and a lot of these are still around because it wasn't that long ago and some of them are defunct but they've just been absorbed into other powerful monopolies you know um we talked about there there was a the whole thing with shell right shell's its own thing but here it kind of had a two separate merger thing where there was a barclays shell and for the people who don't know what what barclays is because we're in the united states I know, and I know most people in the United States either don't know what the fuck Barclays is or think of it as like soccer, but it's an enormous bank in, in England, um, you know, kind of along the lines of what like Wells Fargo is in the United States. Um, you know, so we're talking, you know, we've got General Electric. I mean, we're talking about the, these monopolies that are very real in here now. And of course, this is more recent. And next, we're going to get into this in-depth analysis about how there's more control and it sounds like it's going to describe exactly u.s hegemony because it talked about you know france broke from u.s hegemony and france does that i mean we saw france do that recently with us new nuclear submarines in australia and france being like oh no but for the most part france is every bit as colonial the united states france was the the worst colonizer of africa 
you know, oh, yeah. as far as as far as the most territory. France was was a big colonizer of Asia. I mean, it talked about France recognizing Vietnam and being against you know reinvasion of Vietnam, but France was who had to get kicked out of there. Vietnam. The I was about States. to say the origin, the OG colonizer of Vietnam. Yeah. Um. So. You know, I mean, France is, is definitely a colonizer. They're not against this stuff, but where they do have differences, those are being shuttered away because, again, you know, neocolonialism, it's, it, this is what stops these world wars. They have, you know, all these other, like, proxy wars over stuff, but they're not really, like, fighting wars about who owns a territory. As long as the territory is destabilized in one of their control, they all have control. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the terrifying thing about neocolonialism. It's not about which is France's territory and which is England's territory and which is the United States territory, but none of these countries get their own independence. It's it's not about that. It's about which ones are under Western control in the first place and which ones have thumbed back and, and pushed pushed back against this Western hegemony. And it's really more of a conglomerate based on these old co- colonial relations. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to diving back into this next week for, for our analysis of what's coming next. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, if you wanted to reach out to us, there are a number of different ways you could do that. The first of which would be to reach out to us all through email. That is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, the next way you could reach out to us would be on Twitter. We're at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Uh, and the final way you can reach out to us is through our Discord server. Our Discord server is linked in our Twitter bio. If you don't use Twitter and just want a direct link, just send us an email. We'll get you one right away. Um, but the Discord server is where our day-to-day happenings happen, or at least Nathan's day-to-day happenings happen. David is summoned there on occasion when uh, facts are needed and things like that. But uh, for the for the vibing and the general general chill. Uh, Nathan hangs out in Discord most of the day, and we play Final Fantasy, and we do other such things. But for now, uh, it is just a great community of great people that I am proud to be a part of and proud proud to have as comrades. Uh, so feel free to join at any time. We are more than happy to have you. That being said, David, it's time for a disclaimer. It is time for a disclaimer. So when we started this out, um, Nathan kind of came up to me, and he was like, hey, I want to read Capital. That's something you want to read. Uh, with more than one person, and I know you've read Capital, so let's read it together. And sure enough, we did. And when we did it, we thought, oh, we're only two people. It's a pretty small group for reading theory. Anytime you read theory or history, you want to be reading it as a group. So we thought, what the hell? You know, we know how to, to put up a podcast. We'll record it. We'll see if it's good. And if it's good, we'll, we'll share it. And we did. And lo and behold, we're here. And ever since then, what our vision was, was hopefully you guys are out in some kind of party, some kind of group organizing. And whatever your reading group in that group, of your political education is in that group. Hopefully you guys are reading these works and we could be another voice in that group, another source of input, another source of context, uh, another voice in that group that, that helps you register and understand these books. Um, let's assume, you know, you're not doing that. Uh, let's say your party's reading something shorter or something more specific to something you're organizing around at the time. And you're reading these books on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading group. We can give you that discussion. We can give you that context. We can help make sure you really understand and soak in the work. And let's say that's not happening. And either it's a book like this, where we're reading every word and we're kind of an enhanced ebook or a book that we summarize more like we did way back when with capital, whatever it is that we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want that theory out there guiding your actions. And when that theory put is put into action, it's a phenomenon called praxis. Uh, obviously, praxis can't exist without theory since it is theory in action, and theory is completely useless without praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. 
Amen, as always. That being said, this is Mark's Madness. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.